0: And now, Lord, as we come to your Word, we ask that your Word would do your work in us. We come asking for our daily bread. We come asking that you would feed us by your Word, that you would nourish our souls as we study your Word. We pray that we would see the greatness and the glory of Christ. We pray that we would see our great continuing need for grace and that Christ would be exalted during this time. We pray for our children who are here. We pray for the children both inside and outside of the womb, that, they would, uh, that you would save them in your time. We pray that the gospel would be planted deep in their hearts, and that in your time, you would do the watering, you would cause the growth, you would produce a rich harvest amongst our children. Please, God, save our children for the glory of Christ and use this time to strengthen us, to edify us, and to glorify Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at John chapter 15 verses 6 to 11 today, and we'll come across what is probably possibly the the most difficult verse in this chapter for sure possibly the most difficult verse in uh, the entire book of John Uh, one that there is not a consensus on that's always challenging for us but I think uh, I think we'll we'll find some truth in it I think we'll see um, what Jesus was trying to say here uh, as we continue to study uh, the gospel of John and we'll be looking at John chapter 15 verses 6 to 11 today He started to tell, Jesus started to tell the parable of the vine and the vine dresser in the previous passage. And one of the things that we saw is that a vine that isn't, or a a branch that isn't connected to the vine is absolutely worthless. Israel had not uh, produced good fruit, fruit that was pleasing to God. And so God was going to uh, trample and, and judge Israel. What do you do with something that doesn't do what it's supposed to do? What do you do with something that doesn't do what it was designed to do? What you bought it to do? Well, most of us don't want to hold on to it. Maybe it would make a good paperweight or something. But we either typically throw something away or we exchange it or we we bring it back to the party uh, that sold it to us to get it fixed. Um, Interestingly, uh, maybe not surprisingly, the number one product that gets returned or recalled due to defects, can you guess what it is? It's cars. Cars, probably the most, one of the most expensive purchases we make, and it's the most likely to need to be fixed. Israel didn't do what they were designed and called to do. And as we saw in the first half of the parable of the vine the testimony of the old testament prophets was unanimous that Israel was supposed to bear good fruit for the glory of God fruit that was good fruit that was pleasing to God and yet they only produced bad fruit in fact what the what the prophets what God called worthless fruit which is to say that their faithlessness or their unfaithfulness resulted in works that did not bring glory to God. It's in light of this truth that Jesus has revealed Himself to be the true vine. Not as opposed to the false vine, but as opposed to a vine that has failed. Jesus did what Israel didn't. Jesus produced good and pleasing fruit for the glory of God, which Israel didn't do. The vine that Jesus was, did produce good fruit. The vine produced what was good and pleasing to the Father. But what was God going to do with the old vine? Uh, We saw what He was going to do. He was going to judge it. He was going to trample it. He was going to deprive it of rain so that briars and thistles would grow up in their place. It was going to wither and die. But what would God do with the old vine? The tragic reality is that the wood of a grapevine, and, and perhaps this is why it's such a fitting uh, representation or uh, symbolic image, uh, the wood of a grapevine only serves one purpose, and that is bearing fruit. You can't do anything else with it. Unlike, say, uh, you know, a, a big apple tree. Once a branch uh, is broken off from the, the, uh, from the vine, it can't be used for anything. It's too soft. Now, you can take wood from a large apple tree and saw it down into planks, or you can make things with it. It's strong wood. But the wood from the branches of a vine, that wood is very soft and very, very brittle. It's only good for bearing fruit as long as it is connected to the vine. And if it's not connected to the vine what purpose does it serve? Once it's broken off, there is literally nothing that you can do with them. Now, this is part of the theme of Ezekiel 15, where the prophet expounds on the the uselessness of a faithless Israel. We read this in Ezekiel, starting in verse 1 of chapter 15. He writes, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, How is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? If it has been put into the fire for fuel, and the fire has consumed both of its ends, and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything?" Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less, when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it still be made into anything? Therefore, says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I have set my face against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. That's Ezekiel chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. See, wood would be thrown into the fire. And it was common for the ends to get charred. And for the middle part, uh, for most woods, for a lot of woods, the, the middle part gets hard. In fact, you can use fire to harden wood. But God is telling Ezekiel that you can't do anything with the wood of a grapevine. It's just so fragile, so soft, you can't even use it to make a little peg to hang anything on. It'll break. The only use it has is firewood. And even then, there's so little substance to a grapevine that it burns very, very quickly. So it will only produce very little heat for a very short time. But the point of the parable of the vine, as we saw last week, is that Christ is the true vine, and that every branch in Him, that is all who savingly believe in Christ, would bear fruit by virtue of their connection, their their union with Him, and that the Father would work to ensure this by doing two things. First of all, He would lift up the believer and draw them to Christ, and number two, pruning the branches so that they would bear more fruit. He then went on to explain that the parable presents his people with a responsibility. This parable has has a point, has an application, and that is we are to abide in Christ and thereby bear much fruit. And that is the primary theme of this section of text. In fact, the word abide It's found 11 times in John chapter 15. It's found 8 times between verses 4 and 10. So it's a big deal here. It's important to understand that we're talking about the importance, the necessity, the urgency of abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ is the one and only key to fruitfulness in the Christian life. Abide in me and I in you, Jesus said. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. That's what Jesus said in the passage leading up to our passage today. And so Jesus is going to continue emphasizing the importance of abiding in him, in the passage we come to today. So the point of our text today is that abiding in Christ is the key to powerful prayer, to pleasing the Father, and to proving our discipleship all in order that our joy may be full. Now Jesus has told us what happens when we do abide in him, but now he discusses the other side of the equation. What happens if someone does not abide in him? Let's look at verse 6. John chapter 15, verse 6. Jesus continues. He says, If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now I have to confess to you that this is one of the most difficult verses in John's Gospel to understand. And as a result... Up front, let me just let you know there is not a consensus on exactly what this means among the men whom I consider to be the best commentators of John's gospel. Out of six commentaries, I found three views. And, and it's like, what do you do with that? Well, you, you look at the views and you hold them up side by side and you evaluate uh, the merit of, of each view and try to make a decision. But in fact, two of my favorite preachers... Uh, completely skipped this verse uh, as, as they were preaching through this passage, which I, I was a little bit disappointed to see, but we're going to get to that in a moment. But before we get to the difficult part, we should make sure that we uh, have a foundation. And the foundation, I believe, is in just knowing what it even means to abide in Christ. What does that mean? Given that it is so central, given that abiding is pretty much the central theme of this chapter, we would be doing ourselves a great disservice if we didn't come to a very clear understanding of what this term even means. J.C. Ryle gives us a wonderful definition of abiding as it relates to our walk with Christ. He writes this, he says, quote, To abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with Him, to be always leaning on Him, resting on Him, pouring our hearts to Him, and using Him as our foundation of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. End quote. I think that is a wonderfully succinct definition. It's what it means to abide in Christ. But the question that that forces us to ask ourselves then is does that describe your relationship with Christ? Do you keep close communion with Him? Do you, do you cling to Him and protect your relationship, your walk with Him, the same way that you would cling to a, a fountain of water that sustains your life? Do you honestly feel like you need Him? Not, not just on Sunday mornings, not even just on Sundays, but every day? Do you feel like you need Him? And, and I don't just mean as a quick You know, morning devotion, something you know, to to incorporate as part of your routine before you rush out the door. No, I mean as a source of grace and strength for every hour. How important, how central is your relationship with Christ to the decisions that you make? This concept of abiding in Christ, it's kind of scary. It, it, it's meant to challenge us, it's, it's meant to shake us and kind of wake us up. It's meant to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, especially since if we're being honest with ourselves, we realize that yesterday there were probably a hundred times that we were not abiding in Christ. Every time we sin, we are not perfectly abiding in Christ. None of us does this Perfectly. All of us have room to at least improve on how we abide in Christ. So these words shake us. These words can make us pretty uncomfortable, and that's what they're designed for. They force us to really examine ourselves carefully. And that's exactly what Jesus meant to do with these words, that is their purpose. But it's only a challenge, it's only something that that challenges somebody who is in Christ. Those outside of him, they'd look at that and say, I'm good. The possibility though, in the believer's mind, the possibility of not doing this, of not abiding in Christ, should be terrifying. It should be startling, it should force us to examine ourselves with fear and trepidation, a degree of fear and trepidation. Why? I say that because we should, as God's people who have been redeemed, who have had the new heart put in us, new creations in Christ, we should, we should desire to please God more than we desire anything else in life. And the only way to do that, the only way to please God, the only way to be fruitful is by abiding in Christ. And so as Jesus presents a contrast to abiding in him faithfully, his words here suddenly turn from challenging. They they were. The first part was challenging, but kind of comforting. But now it becomes a little bit unnerving with this verse. We sense the theme of judgment here, right? Do Do you get that? There's a theme of judgment when we're talking about fire. That's exactly what the image of fire is supposed to represent in the New Testament. That's only one of the things uh, that that makes, to me, the charismatic appeal of uh, asking God to send down fire from heaven on his people. Um, That makes it strike me as just very strange and thoroughly unbiblical. But verse 6 here presents problems for every single Christian who takes the Bible seriously. It wouldn't present problems for us if only Jesus had said, if you abide in me, you'll bear good fruit. If you don't, you won't. And if you would have just left it at that and just, that's it. We would have been like, okay, we can deal with that. That would have kept us nice and and comfortable, wouldn't it? But that's not what he says because he's not trying to keep us comfortable here. Instead, he seems to say, depending on your perspective, he seems to say that for the person who does not continue to abide in him, they're cut off from the true vine, cut off from Christ, and they are left to just wither and die and will eventually be gathered with others who were not in Christ and they will be burned in judgment, burned in in hell forever. Uh, years ago, that's exactly how I interpreted this verse, that's a very Arminian understanding of this verse, that, uh, that, that somebody can be cut off from actually being in the vine, but after studying uh, the different views, and there are three of them at least, of this verse, I have to admit now, I'm, I'm not exactly sure which, uh, which view I land on. I don't land on this one. Uh, this verse seems if you if you just isolate it if and that's what arminians tend to do i hate to say it if you just isolate it it seems that jesus is teaching that there were some who were once connected to the vine who stopped abiding and were therefore lost and relegated to suffer under god's eternal wrath in hell is that what jesus is teaching here though we probably know that uh, a lot of people have interpreted it that way. Uh, We call them Arminians. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, The Arminian interpretation is that Jesus is saying that somebody can be legitimately connected to Him, the true vine, legitimately in union with Him, but that if they aren't faithful enough, they will be lost. They'll be cut off and lose their salvation. Is it even possible that Jesus is teaching that here? I mean, is is this verse really sufficient to completely nullify all the verses and all the passages in John which clearly teach that salvation cannot be lost? Uh, Jesus taught back in chapter 10 of His gift of salvation to His people saying, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me Is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, because I once was one, I know exactly how an Arminian would respond to this. They'd say, Well, nobody can take you out of His hand, but you can free yourself from His hand. You can just walk away from His hand. Well, then why didn't Jesus say nobody but you can take his sheep out of his hand? Uh, And why did he even call it eternal life? Why did he say they will never perish if that life can end and if they possibly can perish? You get the point. The perseverance of the saints, or the preservation of of the saints by God, if you want to call it that, uh, is, is clearly taught throughout John's Gospel. Uh, It's clearly taught in several passages throughout the book uh, and throughout John 10. Uh, It was especially present in John 10, and it's elsewhere throughout his gospel. So this one parable uh, isn't enough to nullify all the other evidence. And, and what about passages elsewhere in the New Testament where the perseverance of the saints is clearly taught? I mean, for example, how could Paul have possibly written to the church in Philippi saying, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's what he said in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. How could he have said that if it were possible that God would let them fall away first if that's what they wanted to do? Again, I I know how an Arminian would answer. They'd say something like, uh, well, he meant that he was confident that the Philippians would continue to abide in Christ, but he doesn't mean that he's certain or that he's sure. Again, the problem with that view is that it implies that salvation is at least partly a result of our work, our work of abiding. And if that's the case, you and I have something to boast in. We can boast in the fact that we have faithfully abided while others haven't. But Paul says in so many places that we have nothing to boast of in ourselves. Obviously, I believe the Arminian view is wrong. I completely reject this view. I think Arminians badly uh, misunderstand this verse and many others. So that's the first view, is the Arminian view, that somebody can legitimately be in union with the true vine, and if they're not abiding in the true vine, they'll eventually be cut off. The second view is the view that I had uh, a week ago when I thought that there were only two views uh, of this verse. Uh, And and this is the view, this is the most common view. This is the view that was uh, that that refers to, you know, tares, as we'd say, you know, tares among the wheat. Uh, And people, um, you know, the view is that people who appeared to be in Christ Uh, are the ones being spoken of here. In other words, uh, you might call them an almost Christian, somebody who came to church, somebody who did this and that, but they never truly believed. Uh, That was actually the view, this was actually the view held by uh, John Calvin, Richard Phillips, um, Spurgeon, J.C. Ryle, and scores of other very sound theologians and further, this view seems to comport with the text that Israel is about to be judged and trampled, cast into the fire for judgment by God. But those who hold the third view, which we're going to get to in a moment, point out that there's a very serious problem uh, that's presented in the second view. James Montgomery Boyce holds the third view, uh, and he writes this He says, The difficulty with this approach, to the Uh, the second view, the difficulty with this approach is that it is hard to believe that it is not true branches, believers in Christ, that are spoken of. For one thing, the argument regarding man versus branch does not hold up, for neither word is in the Greek in this verse. He goes on to say the meaning then is if anyone, uh, that is if any of the preceding, whether we're talking about branches or true believers, and that's really what the argument comes down to. Are we talking about branches or true believers? If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away. And Boyce continues noting, quote, besides, there is nothing in the context to indicate that suddenly a new class of persons is being introduced, end quote. Uh, A.W. Pink is another one who holds the third view, and he brings up similar objections. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, At least from from my perspective, I find this very interesting. While those who hold this third view that we're going to get to in a second uh, point out all these objections with the second view, I couldn't find one commentator who holds the second view who even acknowledges or addresses the third view at all. It's as, it's as if the, the third view doesn't exist in those commentaries. So further, those who hold the second view never, uh, never address the, the, the third view. They never find any problems. They never address it. And if you ask me, that gives the third view a bit of merit uh, or, or credibility. So you're probably ready to hear what the third view is, right? The third view... So the second view holds that it's talking about the believer. The third view is that Jesus is talking about the branches, uh, the the fruit. The third view, as James Montgomery Boyce describes, is that quote: "It is the believer's works that are burned. If not these works, uh, if these works are not of Christ, and it is the Christian's role as a fruit bearer and not his salvation that is discussed in this passage." End quote. And so, as I noted earlier, fire in the New Testament. It represents God's judgment, and if this doesn't represent uh, somebody being cast into hell, the question is, what does it represent? Does it represent judgment at all? Yes, it does, but fire doesn't always represent hell. Fire does represent judgment, but fire doesn't always represent Hell Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 12 to 15. He says now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though though through fire. So one of the things that we need to see, which strongly supports this view is the change in tenses that you see in the middle of verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. You'll see it change tenses. In the first half of the verse, we see singular tense. If any does not remain. That's that's singular. Any is singular. But in the second half of the verse, Jesus speaks in the plural tense. And they gather them. Which doesn't seem like a big deal on the surface, but maybe that is significant. Who are they? Who are the them being spoken of here? Boyce concludes this. He says, The them and the they may well be what issues from the one who is thrown away in terms of his usefulness. And if this is the case, then it is the Christian's works rather than the Christian himself that are destroyed. A.W. Pink writes, uh, lot is pertinent uh, is a pertinent example he was out of fellowship with the lord he ceased to bear fruit to his glory and his dead works were all burned up in sodom yet he himself was saved End quote and so both boyce and pink make note of this change of tenses and they both think it's very significant both of them affirm this third view and they argue it pretty persuasively now If you want to know which view I hold to, I'll just say I'm somewhere between the second and third. Uh, Are are there people who go to church and make a profession of faith in Christ who aren't truly in Christ? Are there tares among the wheat? Absolutely. Jesus said there would be. So, So that view has some merit right there. But I think both of these views, second and third, have merit. Absolutely, there are people who claim to be Christians who aren't. And if you are going to church, but are completely lacking in terms of bearing fruit, in fact, if you're bearing bad fruit, uh, you should be very, very afraid for the state of your soul. But at the same time, let's say that you can point to some fruit in your life, but you just don't take the responsibility of bearing fruit as seriously as you could, or as you should, which, by the way, describes every single one of us. You've made other things in life your priority, and we've all done that from time to time. Even though you are a legitimate branch in the true vine, does that happen? Every single day. Absolutely. To an extent, every single one of us falls short. We could all bear more fruit. We could all abide better than we do. There are no exceptions there. But you need to know that all of the works that you do for someone else or for something else, something, whatever it is, something other than for the glory of Christ. All the things that you prioritize over God, even if only for a season, even if only for a day, they are idols. And all of those things will be burned up before you can come into heaven. That's the point that Paul was making in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, all Christians should be aware of that fact. Uh, that, that, and aware of the fact that as one of my seminary professors uh, used to say he'd say quote some people come into heaven smelling like they just came from a bonfire so my, my, uh, my plea to you is don't be one of those people don't be one of those Christians who spend so much of their lives living for something other than the glory of Christ yes we all fall short Yes, we all have room for improvement. Take that as a challenge. Take it seriously. Live for what matters. Live for the glory of Christ above all. If this is not your top priority, you are wasting your life. And you're wasting opportunities to bear much fruit and more fruit for the glory of Christ. So whichever of these three views you hold, this verse is a warning. You must abide in Christ. We are made new in Christ for the purpose of doing good works, of bearing much fruit by abiding in Christ. Every moment in which we do not abide, we can't do anything that's going to make it through that fire. And whatever we produce is ultimately a waste. We are not saved by works And thus we're not saved because we abide in Christ. That's not uh, the the object of our faith. We, We don't put our faith in the fact that we're abiding. No, but we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And legitimate faith, as the Reformers used to say, legitimate faith will be accompanied by works, by our fruit by our abiding in Christ. Ephesians 2.10 We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which He has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. If you profess faith but do not bear any fruit, your profession of faith is completely meaningless. It is an empty and meaningless profession as far as you or I know. And know this, know that whatever you do that isn't done for the glory of Christ is well-deserving for the fires of God's judgment. Your idols cannot enter into heaven with you. The more idols you have, the greater loss you will suffer. And so Jesus, having issued kind of a grim picture of the consequences of not abiding in Him, however you cut it, whichever view you hold, he now expounds on the benefits of abiding in him, the blessings of abiding in him, and for uh, there are four of them. Let's look at verses seven to eight. Jesus continues saying, "If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now there are four blessings in this passage that we're going to see, and these two verses have three of them. Uh, What kind of fruit will we see in our lives if we abide in Christ? The first blessing, the first benefit that we find here, is power in prayer. Power in prayer. If we abide in him, and if his word abides in us, Jesus says, we can ask whatever we want and it will be done for us. Now this is very similar to the promise Jesus made in the previous chapter. In John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, "...whatever you ask in My name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it." Now let's make sure that we understand and remember what we learned when we were studying that passage. That doesn't mean that you can ask for anything. The key there, the key uh, clause in that text was in my name, which means according to his purposes, according to his revealed will in the scriptures. So no, if you ask for a new car, God is under no obligation to give it to you. If you ask for a new job, a new whatever, no, God is under no obligation to give it to you. He's talking about doing things, asking for things according to his interests. Now, there are some slight differences that we find between what Jesus says here in chapter 15 and what he said in chapter 14. In chapter 14, Jesus instructed that we ask in his name. That's that key clause, which means uh, to ask in his interests. But now he instructs us to, to pray with his words abiding in us. His words, what does that refer to? It refers to all of his teachings, obviously, everything that we know that he said, but All of the Old Testament, he said in in Luke, it's recorded in Luke, was written about him as well. And so it refers to the entire Bible. What then does it mean for his words to abide in us? It means that we know the Scriptures. It means that we have studied the Scriptures. We have read them over and over. Maybe we've even memorized certain passages and verses from His Word. It means that His Word has shaped us. It has molded us. It has served to help us direct our decisions. It means that we live our lives by the light of His Word. So in this context, we should see that the contents of Scripture reveal what we should pray for. Scripture tells us which prayers are going to be answered. In the immediate context, it seems that it would make a lot of sense to pray for the strength to abide in Christ, which we all need, uh, and to bear fruit, and for, for Christ to abide with us. But the point is that Jesus is promising here that prayers made in accordance with God's will, as revealed in God's Word, will be answered In the affirmative. Let me give you a quick example, and I don't want to get into any eschatology debates or anything like that, but one thing that all eschatological views have in common is that they affirm what the church has always affirmed, and that is that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. The church has always affirmed that the scriptures clearly teach that Jesus is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. So if The church is correct and that that is what the scriptures are teaching if you pray for Jesus to come back in the father's perfect timing will that prayer be answered yes Uh, well let's take another one let's take my favorite verse anybody know what it is you should you hear it every week it's Romans 8 28 Uh, it says uh, and we know that God causes all things to work together together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose that good, according to the next verse, is growing in Christ's likeness. So let's say I'm having a a miserable, lousy day. I'm really in a bad mood, and I pray, Lord, I am just so crabby today, but please take this situation that I'm facing and use it to make me more like Christ. Will he answer that in the affirmative? His word promises that he is doing that. So absolutely. So power in prayer is the first benefit of abiding in Christ. When we know what God's will is by studying God's word, we know what prayers will be answered. The second benefit from abiding in Christ is that the Father will be glorified. The Father is glorified when a person is changed and begins living a transformed life. It causes a person to become increasingly different and distant from the world around us in terms of our values and our choices and our habits. The world can't help but notice when God transforms a person's life. And maybe that's one reason why God loves to save people who hit rock bottom, whether that's from addiction or whether that's from a life of crime or whatever. And how many people have you known who came to the Lord when they hit rock bottom? It happens. It happens a lot. So number one, the first blessing is power in prayer. Secondly, pleasing the Father, glorifying the Father. The third benefit is that our discipleship is proved. Our discipleship is proved. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. To whom are we proving anything? To whom are we proving our discipleship? We don't need to prove it to God, right? God knows. We're proving it to everyone around us. Now that isn't to say that we're, we're saved by bearing fruit. Rather, the presence of fruit in a person's life serves as proof, serves as evidence that they have been saved. We're not saved by bearing fruit, we're saved by to bear fruit. Bearing fruit glorifies the Father and demonstrates outwardly that God's redeeming, transforming grace has been experienced inwardly. Now there's just one more benefit that we're going to get to before we finish today. But first, Jesus expounds on uh, what a great blessing it is to know that we are truly His, that we are truly His disciples. How do we know if we're truly disciples? Because we bear fruit. That's what proves that we're disciples. And if you're bearing fruit and thus truly His disciples, you need to know what that means for you. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Jesus says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in in his love. There is a love that is worth everything. There is a love that is worth forsaking everything to receive, and that is the love that Jesus has for his people. How great is his love for his disciples, for those who are truly his disciples this is this is just unfathomable you can't you can't explain how great it is how deep it is how wide it is with words i'll just say this much the closer we come to understanding this great love the more motivated we should be to bear fruit and thereby glorify the father and prove our discipleship his love, Christ's love for his people is a sweet and beautiful incentive to abide in him and to thereby bear fruit. He says that his love for his people is like the love that the father has for him. The father loved the son, has loved the son with a love that is so great that it can only be described as infinite in its depths and, and capacity. He, he has loved His Son with a perfect love, an unfailing love, an unwavering love, and He's loved Him this way forever, for all of eternity. I mean, we can't even begin to wrap our minds around the concept of eternity. How much more difficult is it to wrap our minds around a love that lasts for all of eternity? eternity. It's, it's impossible. We can't even come close to wrapping our minds around the greatness of the Father's love for the Son. And here's something that should stagger every single one of us when we try to think about this, when we try to wrap our minds around this. That same great, unfathomably faithful, enormous, eternal, infinite love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that the Son has for for each of His people. He loves us with a love that is infinitely deep, infinitely wide, inexhaustible, indescribable, immeasurable. It is a, a never, never failing love. This is why we sing, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Those words don't do justice. They, they, it's the best that we can do, but they don't, we, we understand they don't even do a little bit of justice to the love that Jesus has for his people. Who in their, might, in their right mind would not want that kind of love for themselves? Who would possibly refuse this great love? It, it's a love that will not let us go. It's a love that, that sought us when we were clothed only in sin and shame. It's a love that would drive Jesus to step down from His throne in heaven to take on flesh and to give His life in the place of His people. It's a love that would take our sin, all of our filth, upon Himself. What king would do that? Take all the filth of His people upon Himself in order to render us as His people clean. To say that this love is wonderful and marvelous is an understatement. But it's impossible to to fully wrap our minds around this love. Jesus' love is a merciful love. It's a a gracious love. But it's more than just those things. It it has to go beyond just being a merciful and gracious love because the Father's love for the Son isn't a, a merciful or gracious love. Jesus doesn't need mercy. Jesus doesn't need grace. So, how does the Father love the Son? He loves him in such a way that he delights in him. He loves him in such a way that he is pleased by him. That's what, uh, that's what God pronounced, from, what the Father pronounced from the, the sky while Jesus was being baptized. He approves of the Son fully, completely. And he desires to experience fellowship with the Son, unbroken fellowship with the Son. And that is how Jesus loves his people. How could anyone not be interested in proving to themselves and to others that they are a true disciple and to prove it by bearing fruit? Do you want this love? Do you want this love? Do you want to know that this love is yours forever? Then you must abide in Christ. Abide in his love. Keep his commandments. This is not saying that that's how you're saved. It's not. We're not saved by keeping his commandments. Rather, we keep his commandments because we're saved. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This love that is just indescribable. He says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus took great joy on earth by walking in accordance with the Father's will. He demonstrated this by submitting His own will to the will of the Father. And likewise, friends, this is a call for us. If we are His people, it's a call for us to submit our wills to the will of Christ the same way that He submitted His will to the Father, because close, intimate fellowship is the blessing and benefit that we gain through obedience. This is why we take obedience seriously. This is why if somebody's walking in sin, we practice church discipline. It's because we abide in His love by being obedient to His commands. And so, when somebody wants us to disobey His commands... When Caesar instructs us to disobey what God has clearly instructed, we choose to obey God over Caesar because neither Caesar nor anybody else on earth has the authority nor the right to deprive us of the experience of abiding in Christ's love for us by obeying what he's instructed us to do. This is a love that is worth losing everything else for. When Polycarp was about to be thrown to the beasts in the Colosseum, the proconsul admonished him to renounce Christ in order to save his own life. It was the only reason that they would withhold him from throwing him to the beasts. And Polycarp's answer was this. He said, quote, "...80 in six years have I served him, served Christ, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior?" The same principle extends to us, friends. Christ has never done anything wrong to us. How can we do wrong to Him by ignoring or by disobeying the commandments of Him who has loved us so greatly? So, to Caesar, do what you got to do. Take our homes. Take our money. Take our freedom. There's something that you can't ever take. And that is Christ's love for us which we rest in when we walk in obedience to Him. And this brings us to the fourth and final blessing of abiding in Him, and that is being filled with joy. Let's continue looking at verse 11. Jesus continues saying, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. You need to know if you're walking in Christ. If you're a new believer and you haven't been walking with Jesus for long, we all need to know and be constantly aware of the fact that the world around us would do everything in their power to convince you that if you live for Christ, you are not going to like it. You are going to be miserable. You're going to be deprived of so many things. And sometimes the world will actually add miseries to you to convince you of such a notion. That's why we have churches around the world that meet privately. Because that's what their governing authorities and the world around them is trying to do. To add miseries to them, to God's people, because of their devotion to Christ. The world will say that if you, if you give up this sin, if you give up that sin in order to believe and in order to follow Jesus, uh, you're going to just leave behind every pleasure in life. But what Jesus is saying here in His Word, what Jesus is saying here is that the exact opposite is true. You are not forsaking pleasure for misery. You are forsaking misery for pleasure, for joy. For a joy that transcends every circumstance of your lives. For a joy that cannot be taken away from you. You can take away all the pleasures of the world. They can all be diminished. They can all be destroyed. And one day they will be. But you cannot take away the believer's joy that comes from abiding in Christ. Forsaking sin to believe in and to pursue Jesus is always worth it. You're exchanging dirt for for diamonds because it results in a joy, a true and righteous joy that is only experienced by God's people, and it's only experienced when we abide in Him. So let me encourage you with this. Let me urge you to hear this. Do not let disobedience to God's commands deprive you of the joy that is rightfully yours in Christ jesus and it will disobedience will don't let it don't even let it get its foot in the door now jesus is not saying that if you believe in him when he says your life uh, that your joy may be full he's not saying you're going to have an easy life he's not saying you're going to have a life with no troubles Anybody can have an easy life. There are pagans who would tell you that they've got an easy life. And Jesus is certainly not saying that abiding in him will ensure that all your dreams and all your aspirations will be realized. Uh, Praise the Lord that he doesn't uh, fulfill all our dreams and aspirations because our purposes are so much lower than his. What Jesus is saying is that he's saying something better. He's saying that there is a peaceful and persistent joy that is so sweet to our souls, which transcends all of life's difficult and painful circumstances, and it's ours in him. This is a joy that the world knows nothing of and and cannot know anything of as long as they do not come to Christ. Christ. It's the joy that James has in mind when he writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And the natural man, when he hears that, he thinks, well, What kind of nonsense is that? That sounds oxymoronic. It sounds like it's contradicting. How can you have joy and trials? Because in the natural man's mind, you can only have happiness if life is easy, if life is good. But James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing so consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials when life gets hard when things get tight when the world tries to persecute you as john newton wrote in the song we just sang earlier Fading is the worldlings' pleasure, all its most pomp, uh, pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. If you are in Christ, that is you. You can know a joy that the world will never be able to fathom when you abide in Christ. And so I pray that you would know these joys, that you would know the treasure that is found by God, abiding in Christ, walking in obedience to Him, that indeed your joy would be full as you abide in His love. Abiding in Christ is the key to powerful prayer, pleasing and glorifying the Father, and proving our discipleship, all in order that our joy may be full. If you have never believed in Christ, I must urge you today that time... Is short. Every minute is just ticking away. Time runs out before you know it. But you need to know that if you have never believed, all you have ever tasted, all you have ever experienced is a pleasure that is fleeting, and all you've done is disobey God. God's commandments. But God's word tells us this. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So turn from your sin and shame. Come to Christ in obedient faith. He will welcome you. He will forgive you. And you too will learn the joy that Christ's people know and that Christ's people experience by having his word abiding in us and by our abiding in Christ. Let's pray. our most gracious Heavenly Father. We thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding of Your Word. We thank You, O Lord, for blessings like conviction, uh, discomfort, when those things draw us closer to Christ. And so we pray, O Lord, as we contemplate and meditate on this passage, we pray that You would give us the strength through the Spirit dwelling within us to abide in Christ. Teach us, O Lord, to contemplate His love for us. Teach us, O Lord, to walk in light of the love that Christ has for His people. Teach us, Father, to live lives that would please and glorify You and that prove our discipleship. We ask these things not for our own glory, not for our own benefit, but for the glory of Christ. Our greatest desire, Lord, is that He would be glorified in our lives as we abide in Him and bear much fruit